Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features jazz trombonist and composer Kalia Vandiver. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Rosanna Moore, and today the wonderful, the amazing, the lovely co-host is the wonderful Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, Adam, my dear. How are you this fine, fine morning? Hi, Rosie. I'm doing really well. Thank you. So who is our guest today? Well, we're really excited that we have a jazz musician. Uh, So we have the wonderful Kalia Vanderveer. Now, Kalia is a trombonist, a composer, and an educator thrown all into one, and she has performed all over the country. Uh, She originally was from LA and is now based in Brooklyn, New York. And one of the interesting things I found in her biography is that she has performed on Saturday Night Live with Demi Lovato and on Samantha Bee's Full Frontal with Lizzo, which is just the coolest thing I have ever heard. She brought out her debut album, In Bloom, in May 2019, which features all of her own original compositions. So, hi, Kalia. Thank you so much for joining us this fine morning. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, Rosanna and Adam. All right. So let's kick it off with some questions. Can you talk about how you found yourself playing trombone as a freelancer uh, on the jazz New York City circuit? So I started playing jazz music when I was in high school specifically, and I hadn't listened to a lot of modern jazz at the time. Um, I was used to mainly hearing a lot of traditional jazz music, but some of my peers at the time introduced me to artists like Walter Smith III and Ambrose Akimuzire, and that's when I fell in love with the music and was introduced to the New York City jazz scene. So then I applied for colleges on the East Coast, uh, including Juilliard, New England Conservatory, and Manhattan School of Music. And so then I decided to go to Juilliard, and that's when I kind of got thrown into being a musician in the city, which is pretty daunting, but I'm used to it now. (laughs) Were you always interested in pursuing a music career, or is it one of those one thing led to another types of stories? I was interested in pursuing a music career since I was in eighth or ninth grade. I remember having a Berklee College of Music sign in my bedroom for the longest time when I was younger. And then when I went to high school, I discovered other music conservatories that I might be interested in. Uh, But by the time of high school, uh, considering I went to an arts high school, that's when I decided that I wanted to be a professional musician. 
um, in some fashion. I didn't know that I would end up being my own band leader or be a side woman as well. Um, but I knew that I wanted to pursue music from a pretty early age. You released your debut album in Bloom in May 2019, and um, that features your compositions for quartet that uh, comprises trombone and voice, and then piano, bass, and drums, and a duo with guitar. Can you talk a little bit about how you developed the concept for this album? So I started composing a lot of the songs that ended up on the album when I was in college. I remember about halfway through my undergraduate degree, I wanted to find an outlet to bring my music to musicians that I really identified with. And I wasn't generally finding that in my school environment. Uh, so that's when I started playing out a little more and playing with other musicians from different schools and from different areas of the city. And that's when I started composing songs like In Bloom and Renee and On Sing. Those are three of the earliest compositions uh, on my album. and. That kind of felt like the beginning of my compositional voice, and those compositions felt really, really near and dear to me, and it felt like I was finally developing something that felt really original to, to me and what I wanted to develop as an artist. And so I met the three other musicians my junior year of college, uh, Theo, the pianist, Nick Dunstan, the bassist, and Connor Parks, the drummer. Uh, they, the three of them went to the new school for jazz and contemporary music. So we started playing some sessions together and I decided that's the band that I wanted to have. And so that's when we started developing those songs. And then I, around the time of my graduation is when I decided I was ready to start at least the first ideas of recording. Um, so that's, that's how, it, how it started. I think that's something that's worth pointing out. Dear listeners, I'm sure you have noticed this, but a lot of these collaborations did start with people being friends in college. Um, and I love actually that this is a cross-conservatory collaboration as well, because it is fascinating to hear that a lot of these things do grow out of friendships. And I think that's really important, but that is completely by the by, and I should be asking questions instead. <laughs> What sort of methods did you use to secure funding for this project? So obviously the in the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, the recording scene has completely changed. Uh, did you use crowdsourcing platforms and write grants or was this more of an old fashioned way of just saving every penny until you could do it? It was certainly the latter. I had to save a lot of money before I started recording. And I think that's why it took me a little while to finally get into the studio. Um, both due to my nerves, but also funding. Um, I had crowdsourced for a tour prior to that. Uh, mm -hmm. We toured in New Orleans. We played at five different venues in New Orleans, and that's something I had wanted to do for a while, and I crowdsourced for that. And then shortly after that is when I started pursuing the recording of the album, uh, or the early stages of it. So through other tours and being a side woman, I just saved all that money towards recording. And once I finally got to a place where I was comfortable paying for the recording fees and you know, compensating my musicians and then ultimately releasing the album, which I didn't know a whole lot about recording and releasing music on your own until I was thrown into the experience. But yeah, I just saved up as much as I could from, from other work that I had at the time. How did you identify a studio to record with? Did you, I mean, were there relationships that you knew 
with people that you'd worked with before or did you do more of a kind of research and 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 find who you feel committed to type of a thing yeah so first i asked my pianist if he had any studios in mind because uh, i wanted him to record an instrument that he was comfortable recording on and if he had known of a studio uh, with a piano that he had recorded on before I wanted to prioritize that. Mm -hmm. um, he mentioned a couple studios and then after that I reached out to a couple friends of mine, um, Maria Grand and Adam O'Farrell, two really really great musicians who I admire and they both mentioned the studio, Douglas Recording Studio, uh, which is in Gowanus, Brooklyn. And so and then I reached out to the engineer there and he gave me a little virtual tour um, and then I got all the specs from him to see what kind of drums and uh, piano they had there, sent that to my bandmates, and that's when I decided to record there. So given that epidemic, you know, that pesky little thing that has been going on for the last few months, uh, how has that taken the toll on marketing your album? You obviously brought it out in 2019, but I'm assuming 2020 was still going to be a year of really pushing it. Yeah, strangely enough, this year I wanted to record again. So <laughs> we actually, we, we played our release show in 2019, um, in August of 2019. The release show was supposed to be in May, but I got in a bike accident, so we had to kind of push everything, <laughs> push everything back. Um, so we finally had the release show in August, and then we did a tour on the East Coast in December. So right before this mess, uh, we toured the album, uh, which felt really good. And at that point, I had already written a lot of new music for the quartet and a lot of the new music we played on the tour in addition to the music on In Bloom. So at the start of this year, I thought we could potentially record this new music and then I could work on a second album. Um, but that, of course, hasn't happened. So now we're looking at 2021 recording new music. Um, but I still play a lot of these compositions whenever I get the opportunity to. But the band is kind of all over the map now, so it's a little more difficult once performances are happening again to probably get the same group of people together. I, I just wanted to follow up with that. It, so you had a, tan unlike some musicians, you actually had a tangible product that you could sell during the pandemic. Has that been something that you've noticed as uh, sort of sales have been affected one way or another during this time? Yeah, and you know, I, I sell my album through Bandcamp and as most musicians know, Bandcamp has been doing these- uh, Bandcamp Fridays. Bandcamp Fridays. Uh, <laughs> I think once a month now it's been. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been selling most of my albums on those days, which has been great. And I actually ran out of the physical CDs, which I'm very thankful great. for. But I have. That's awesome. I can't really afford <laughs> to order more right now, but I would like to. But I ran out a couple months ago of the physical CD. Um, so hopefully next year at some point I'll order more. And I would like to order vinyl as well at some point. So. Mm. But yeah, sales have been good during the pandemic, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> That's good. That's well, awesome. I, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully there will be, um, hopefully there'll be physical CDs or vinyls at some point. <laughs> check out the show notes and check out all of Kalia's <laughs> social medias for more. I normally do the spiel at the end. <laughs> yeah, the, but the digital album is still available for purchase and it's available for streaming and all of that. So, um... So you've performed extensively in major venues throughout the world, including Carnegie and the Sydney Opera House and the Walt Disney Concert Hall. 
Um, how do you balance your touring schedule with the time, space, and energy that you need to compose? Well, it it's interesting because you know, given all the time we have now, it it was shocking at first because I had so much more time to focus on my own my own projects. Um, but before that, I was actually having a pretty difficult time balancing the two. Hmm. Um, normally, when I would be on tour, I'd be on tour for stretches of one to two months. So during that time, it's nearly impossible to focus on my own projects or planning a tour of my own. Um, but when I'm home, I try to schedule days in my calendar in which I don't book anything. So if I've booked rehearsals or gigs, you know, looking to the future, I actually learned this from my friend and bassist Nick. He said he started planning in like days for himself, whether that be personal days or work days where he's working on compositions of his own. Like you have to kind of start scheduling that time ahead of time so that you don't completely fill up your schedule um, mm -hmm. if, you, if you are able to. You know, there are obviously times where I can't afford to say no to things, but um, <laughs> if I can, I try to like now schedule days either to rest or to work on my own stuff. That's so important. Actually, that's something that I, Adam, I don't know if you do this, but certainly when I was touring and giggling, giggling, gigging all over the place, I giggle as well, you know. um, but I, I would have to write in my, my planner, this has to be a laundry day, this has to be X, Y, Z, because I don't do it otherwise, and then I sort of realize, oh, I don't have any more black pants to um, go and play an orchestra with. So I, I think that's, it's something that we should all be cognizant of, of don't, but don't burn the flame at both ends. If nothing else, 2020 has taught us that, I hope. Yeah. Looking at your biography, it says that you endorse Con Selma and Bach instruments and Dennis Wick London accessories. Now, what does this actually mean? Do these companies approach you about it? Or is it something that you do based on preferences and experiences? And as a final follow-up, are you limited to just performing on these instruments or, um, or accessories? Or can you use other uh, other things. Well, with uh, Con Selmer and Bach instruments, I've played on this Bach vintage horn for most of my career, and it's my baby. And I don't know if I'll really, I mean, I'm sure at some point I'll get a new horn, but someone told me that I need to get a different horn to tour with because if something were to happen to my vintage horn, then <laughs> that makes sense. It's hard to replace. So I'm currently looking at Bach instruments to get a new horn and you know, they have a large array of really great horns under the umbrella of Con Selmer, but with Bach instruments too, they have, they have a lot of great horns. So I've been looking through them and uh, I really like endorsing their instruments because it, I've played on their instruments for, yeah, my entire career. And um, I've tried out some of their newer horns at, at NAMM um, a couple of years ago. And so I, I'm not limited to using the instruments, but I, I don't have interest in really trying anything else and I do That's feel fair. really loyal to them because I, you know, I've, I've grown to really love their products. And then in terms of Dennis Wick, I started endorsing their stuff about a year ago. Um, I had tried out some mouthpieces from a friend of mine and not only do they sound really great, but they also have a really beautiful aesthetic. Um, mm. And so, and they have a really great partnership with all of their artists and they stay in touch with us a lot and I feel really connected to to them and their brand so 
again, I don't, I think I could use other products, but I, I frankly don't want to because I love, I love both of their stuff. That is an endorsement. <laughs> I was actually going to ask, this seems to be more of a thing for wind and brass players. Yeah, Adam, do, right. do you know of any string players who endorse string makes or bow makes well, or anything? No, I mean, that's not, I, I mean, <laughs> I guess maybe you can endorse an Amadi instrument, but <laughs> those aren't really coming <laughs> you about You can endorse anymore. Stradivarius. <laughs> Yeah, but no, but I mean, it's interesting though, Rosie, because I mean, you have a very close association with Salvi harps, so it's not it's not unusual depending on the category. I, I mean, I'm definitely I'm definitely a Salvi girl. It's Lennon and Healy's are beautiful instruments. I just personally sound like garbage on them. I sound really good on the Italian instruments, so I stick with them. But it it, it is interesting that the endorsement program isn't doesn't seem to be the same. I see so many colleagues of ours who say, oh, I'm endorsed by XYZ. Percussionists are the same. They will be endorsed by certain mallets and mm -hmm. drum makes and marimba makes. And it's just interesting that there's such a divide within the music world of this just being a thing in general. So um, Kalia, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about your work with the Thelonious Monk Institute's peer-to-peer -peer program. Uh, this. Uh, it seems to feature prominently in your work as an educator. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the design of the program and the goals of the program and um, how that may have changed. And, uh, you know, now that we're in a, a primarily virtual context uh, and things like that. So the Thelonious Monk Institute, uh, which is now known as the Herbie Hancock Institute, um, has this program called the Peer to Peer Program. And the idea behind it is high school students go to other high schools and teach the musicians there in the program. And this was my earliest memory of teaching, um, but they gave us a lot of tools to work with when approaching other high school musicians in different cities. So one year we traveled to Boston and another year we traveled to Memphis. And normally we would have a mentor there with us. One year it was Ingrid Jensen and then another year it was Antonio Hart. And it was really great, especially as a young person to kind of witness what it's like to teach other musicians who may not be that passionate about playing music, but when they see you up on stage doing something that you love and doing something that you have a lot of fun doing with your friends, you can see the inspiration in their eyes when you're performing for them. And so that, that was kind of my introdu introduction to teaching and why I wanted to continue it past that age, which was a pretty young age, but um, that really inspired the other work that I did um, at Juilliard and after Juilliard as well. So what do you believe the most important outcome for these community engagement programs uh, can be? Yeah, I think the best thing that came from that and can come from any outreach program similar to what I did with the peer-to-peer -peer program is getting them to continue a hobby that they love, whether it be playing music or playing a sport. Um, a lot of these students didn't really have a lot of hobbies outside of school or didn't enjoy being at school. And you could tell from the conversations that we were having with them, they just like didn't want to be there. Um, but after the performances, a lot of them would come up to us and ask us like, oh, what is it like, you know, going to an art school or when did you start playing trombone? And just seeing them realize that that's something that you can do for either a career or something that you can spend your time doing outside of school uh, was really was really great and inspiring to see. The Herbie Hancock Institute's peer-to-peer -peer program seems like it's more of a um, kind of isolated moments in time with different students, but you've also served as an assistant to the 
uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center's uh, Jazz Academy. Um, how did you find that that shaped your approach to long-term teaching? So during that program, I was both an assistant and also a trombone teacher. So I taught private lessons to some of the students there um, on the weekends. And I remember I had this one female student who she didn't really want to be there and had a hard time during the classes, like paying attention. But we, in our lessons, I would just get us to play some duets together and kind of occupying her time for 45 minutes and talking about what she likes about the trombone, what she doesn't like about the trombone. I think really, uh, it really kind of established something for me as a teacher going into lessons, just making sure that whatever student I have has a good time mm -hmm. and develops a good relationship with the instrument. And if they're having difficulty with something, which, you know, I feel like most musicians do from time to time to time, you know, with the trombone, there's a lot of weird things about the instrument that I don't love. So it's it's important to not only share what you like about it, but share what you don't like. And I think through through that academy assistant position and serving as a trombone uh, instructor for that program, I learned that kids, you got to just come to their level and see where they're at and you can just have a good conversation with them or you can just sit there and and see what comes from that time spent together. We're going to take this a slightly different route now. In 2018, you wrote an article titled Token Girl for Medium, which then went on to be mentioned in the New York Times, in which you describe many instances in which you were subjected to far too many inappropriate and uncomfortable situations by mentors and probably colleagues alike. Could you talk a little bit about your experience working in a historically male-dominated industry, not only as a genre, but also as an instrumentalist being a trombonist? Yeah, so when I was at the Juilliard School, that's when I realized that this field is primarily made up of men. And I think prior to that, in high school, um, there were far more women students in the program than when I went to college. So it was really shocking to go from that environment to an environment where I was one of a few women. Um, and the first couple of years, I, you know, I was just trying my best to be a good student, but all the other things that I experienced got in the way of that at a certain point. And that's when I started kind of stepping out of school and meeting other people, meeting other women, because I really craved that energy um, from not being around women in the program. So I think that's when I found my own circles that I feel supported in. Um, one being, you know, my band. There's no other women in, in my band, but I felt supported by them and I felt like I could bring my experiences of sexism and misogyny to them and I would feel supported. And I didn't feel that when I was in school. Um, and nor did I feel that sometimes on the bandstand. So just finding people that stand by you and support you uh, was something that I learned about my junior year when I was you know, not having a good time and considering a different avenue because it just didn't seem worth it to me at a certain point. But that's when I realized there are other musicians out there. There are other women out there who are having the same experience. And that's what I learned through publishing 
token girl, um, a lot of women around the world reach out to me and said they, they've experienced something similar to that. I'm sorry that you had to go through that and had to write something like that to bring it to the fore, but I'm pleased that at least it's bringing comfort to other people going through a similar situation. Definitely. And, and since then, and since I've graduated, I've been able to find my own community where I can kind of enter any situation or any gig or rehearsal setting and feel empowered to say something or mm -hmm. feel like there's someone there who will support me if something does happen. And uh, when I was in college and starting out as a freelance musician in the city, I didn't feel that support. So now through having conversations and through, you know, getting out of school and not being in that environment anymore, I feel a lot stronger in, in the decisions I make when playing with certain people or when kind of deciding, okay, this is not a situation that I want to be a part of and kind of taking a step back. And now I can kind of gauge what communities I want to be a part of in the music scene at large in New York. Would you be open to sharing some advice to those of us who benefit from privilege as to how we can serve as allies and provide safe and supportive and equitable environments for women to thrive both uh, professionally and educationally? I think it really comes down to awareness, being aware of your surroundings, being aware of the people that you're playing with, and being aware of your own privilege in those settings. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to people just not recognizing how my experience would be different from someone else's or be different from a man's or be different from a white person's experience. And just acknowledging that and being aware of the room of people that you are with is really important. And, and I think it just comes down to acknowledgement and accountability. And um, I find with the people that I play who realize they're at more of a privilege being a man in the industry, um, they just will reach out to me and other women and just kind of check in, you know, whether in the moment or, you know, after um, an experience where they witness something distasteful or worse, um, checking in with those people and just making sure that, you know, women feel supported in the industry. Mm -hmm. So following on from that, what else do you think we can do to help erase objectification in the arts? Because this, this has obviously been a hot topic for a few years, mainly in the acting realm and the film realm, but it's really coming to the fore in America uh, for musicians at the moment. I don't know how to answer that question because I think if you aren't around a lot of women, and that's what I noticed with my peers at Juilliard in the jazz program, if you don't have... Um, women coming in to teach master classes or any women teaching any classes to begin with and you're not around women in general it seems like through that you just have a hard time talking to women face to face you know and that's what I found with a lot of my peers there and um, at gigs if I was the only woman I would just notice that the way that they would converse with me or look at me was was different and and I had a really hard time with that, and I would often alter the way I would dress or wear things that were less fitted to gigs just to take a, a male's gaze off me, you know, and just hopefully expect them to just appreciate me for a musician and not, not to realize that I'm different from them. And I think that helps just being exposed to powerful women and being and talented women and just recognizing their talent and having respect for that takes away the objectification 
and not tokenizing women either. On one hand, I want to be recognized for how my experience is different, but I don't want to be singled out either <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in a performance setting. So I, I like their, when there are other women just so that I'm not singled out. I, you know, I appreciate when a band leader refers to the band as uh, all of you and not just guys. You know, and these are little things that just go a long way in not objectifying women. It's interesting to hear you speak about the importance of community in in helping to break down some of these uh, longstanding negative traditions. Just because this is something that we've been hearing from many of our other guests as well is just how crucial it is that it's not, like you say, singling someone out, but providing multiple people to be able to create a supportive environment. From a separate point of view, just obviously with orchestral musicians, classical musicians, we have the whole performing behind a screen for auditions, which is supposed to take out that element of biases, because obviously, once upon a time, women never had positions in orchestras and, and were laughed out of a room if they, regardless of how well they played. Is there anything similar to that? I wondered if that's something that you think may be worth considering and bringing forward at some point. I certainly think it would be worth um, going through because a lot of the gigs that I've gotten and a lot of the gigs that occur in the jazz community are just based on recommendation. And so for the longest time, if the only musicians you know are men, or the only musicians that you play with are men, then they're going to just recommend the same dudes <laughs> over and over again. Um, and for me, yeah, most of the gigs I get are recommendation-based, but now I, you know, with the community that I've fostered, I know enough musicians and play with a lot of women musicians as well at this point. A lot of the people I collaborate with are women. Um, and just, I think ultimately in the jazz world, it's going to take that cycle of just getting to know more women and diversifying bands in general and having that in mind when you are putting together a a band. Let's say if the band that you normally play with is consisting of all white men, maybe if you're putting together another bill, try like take a step back and realize, oh, maybe this isn't a good look. <laughs> because at this point, there are many more female musicians in the jazz world. So the excuse of, oh, well, there's just no women out there is not, <laughs> it doesn't fly anymore. There are a lot of really talented women everywhere you know not just in new york city but on the east coast on the west coast and and so i think the blind audition thing would be great especially for larger ensembles because there's a lot there's some big bands that are still only men and that's just not an excuse anymore because there's it's like 25 men you can have one woman in there <laughs> at least i think that is necessary especially for older male musicians who either lead big bands or lead any ensemble really if if they're looking to replace a seat or if a seat is opened up in a big band, I think they have to do that because unfortunately the older generation of jazz musicians, which is mostly men, um, they're not thinking in that way at all. So like, they're not going to consider, I don't have much confidence based on knowing the older generation of jazz musicians. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the confidence that they would consider, you know, including a woman in the pool of people they would, want in the band. So I think a blind audition, especially for big bands, would, would be great. But I think in, in my generation of jazz musicians, I, I have hope and I do feel 
like most people are, are now calling more women to be a part of gigs or, or recordings. That's good. And that's really important. Baby steps, but we'll get there slowly. Definitely. <laughs> Aside from all of this, you have also engaged in outreach by building homes for Habitat for Humanity, which is really awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how this work intersects with your musical career and what you took away from this experience? Sure. So this was through the Juilliard School and they have this okay. program called Art Reach. And every year they would take 18 artists down to New Orleans to collaborate with Habitat for Humanity and work on building a house. I was both passionate about doing that work, but also doing that work in New Orleans because I have a pretty close connection with the city and my parents now live there. Um, but I had been going there every year um, around the holidays and and I just love the culture down there and the, the community of artists and musicians down there is one that I've grown really close with. So. Um, knowing that it was happening in New Orleans and knowing the work that we'd been doing was really exciting for me and it was one of the best experiences I had and one of the best experiences that came also from being at Juilliard because I also got to know a lot of artists in different programs there which was not not often something that I was thrown into at school because everyone is so in their own program and you don't often get the chance to work with other people so we were working on a house from about let's say 8 a.m. to noon or one o'clock, we would have a lunch break and then we would go to schools and and put on a performance for them. So we combined, oh, that's awesome. yeah, so we combined all of our talents. There were actors, there were singers, there were musicians and dancers. And so we came up with a show. We collaborated on a show, all of us. And after we would work on the house for most of the morning and afternoon, we would then go into schools and perform for them. So it was a really, really special week. I'm interested in, in asking you a little bit about uh, this kind of from a selfish perspective, but um, what advice do you have for classical musicians who are interested in gaining experience with jazz? Because I find myself often teaching a lot of jazz inspired repertoire. And, you know, in particular, there's this piece that I love to teach my string quartets called uh, Thelonious uh, Monk Meets Bartok, but without having that jazz background. Um, I wonder what more I could be understanding and conveying in those sorts of things. So I wonder if you have any advice uh, about how people who are already kind of established in their careers can become a little bit more familiar uh, in jazz. Yeah, so I think it really comes down to listening to a lot of really great recording, jazz recordings and getting to know the history of the music and transcribing some of your favorite melodies. You know, there's a, an incredible and vast songbook of jazz standards that we all have to learn when we're um, learning how to play jazz. And a lot of it that we learn is by, by ear. And so, you know, transcribing the melodies and listening to the harmony and just finding our favorite improvisers to listen to. Um, and that's what influenced, you know, my sound as an improviser. But I think it comes down to just finding the music that you love within jazz and finding the songs that you love and learning them and learning some of the repertoire and learning some of the songs and just playing it on your instrument. And it doesn't have to be a recording with your instrument on it. I found that most of the music that I love doesn't have trombone on it. And mm -hmm. I would often listen to a lot of saxophonists and pianists and that really influenced my sound. And so I think to anyone who wants to start playing jazz, just listen to you know, Duke Ellington or Thelonious Monk, as you mentioned, or John Coltrane or Charlie Parker and, and see what you like about those artists and those improvisers and 
start learning a couple of their their lines and start learning the songs that they wrote or played and and then through that you can kind of develop your own sound as improviser my um my freshman roommate at Juilliard who's a violinist in the last couple of years started getting heavily involved in improvising and I remember her reaching out to me a year and a half ago and she's like I never thought this would happen but it's you know you encouraged me to start improvising but now this is what I've been working on and this is what I've been doing so I would love to get together and play and now we improvise together which is crazy um that's really cool yeah yes. yeah so she's like fully entrenched in improvisation now as a violinist mm. and so you know I think just and then playing with other people is is something that I would recommend to people as well once you start improvising just get together with some people and and play through some songs what would you say to young musicians who are trying to establish a career in music I would say to younger musicians to stick with it and find aspects of music and your instrument that you love. Don't get discouraged by what other people say about you or about being a musician um, as a career. I've run into that a lot and I still run into that and I've learned to not take it seriously and, and believe in myself and that's something that I didn't do for a really long time and I didn't have a lot of courage or confidence um, to pursue this career, but because I loved it and because it's something that ultimately I found my own kind of world within music and something I really identify with, that, that helped me and that encouraged me to keep going. So find the music that you love to play, find people around you that support you. Um, and that's something I learned later in life, but I wish I had that support from a younger age. I think imposter syndrome is a real, real thing. It's it, it can be quite damaging, but also quite formative for a lot of us as performers. Uh, so I think that's an important thing to bring up. Now, I have come to my favorite question of every single episode that we have. What's the weirdest gig that you've ever done? Wow, the weirdest gig I've ever done. Okay, <laughs> I feel like I've played some pretty weird gigs. I do, I, I, I have one to share that happened a couple years ago. Um, it was for a TV show. It's for this TV show that Hilary Duff is on called Younger. A friend of mine who's a trumpet player who I th thought was going to be on the recording, or I didn't really know what it was exactly, but she she reached out to me. She was like, is this something you'd be interested in? They need a band to be in the background of the scene of the show Younger. And I said, yeah, that that's, sounds great. Like I'm equipped for that. Just let me know when and where to be. <laughs> um, and she's like, okay, great. Like, I'll, you know, I'll pass your info along to the director. So I get there the day of the shoot, and all the other musicians happened to not be musicians, and they were all actors except for me in the band. So my friend wasn't even on it, so I was very confused. And I'm like, I'm not an actor. So I was really hoping that it didn't consist of any acting, but it was just, we were in the back of, um, what was staged as this bar in in Germany, I believe, and they put us in these like really flashy outfits, of course, and we're tucked away in this corner, and no one else like knew how to play their instruments, and so and we were miming the whole time, and the shoot was like eight hours long, so I just had to mime and like move around for eight hours while we were shooting this, while they shooted this like five minute scene over and over again. Um, oh my gosh. And clearly the other musician, the other 
actors didn't really know how to hold some of their instruments. So it was really strange. After the fact, I, I found the episode and I watched it. And I'm like, it obviously, it only lasted a few minutes and we were barely in any of the shots. But it looks hilarious and it's a funny story I can tell. And now I have something on my resume, you know, playing on a on a weird TV show with Hilary Duff. That's really that funny. Really and, bizarre. Oh, I think we've all seen those like bad stock images of someone playing a recorder upside down or something. And it's just like, I, it would take you 10 seconds to Google how to do this properly. <laughs> or hire a musician, hire a musician that's not an actor. Right, and I know a lot of musicians who have done work um, on TV, like Saturday Night Life or playing with pop artists where you have to move a lot with your instrument. And so I'm so curious as to why they only hired one musician and everyone else were actors. I didn't, maybe they couldn't find someone who like also put that they can pretend they play trombone on the resume, but I, it was very, it was a very strange assortment of people. <laughs> and I still have never understood well, it's that. especially a strange gig just because it involved no playing. You got hired to <laughs> to be silent well if you actually play they have to pay you royalties i think that's why oh yeah i think going into it i was excited to get paid to not do anything but afterwards i was like i don't really want to do that again <laughs> I, would, I would much rather want to play and get paid for doing that that's so funny. thank you so much for joining us today and just being an absolute delight for us to talk to and uh talking about some very important um aspects of being a musician as well as just some fun silly things like pretending to play the trombone i is there uh, anything you would like to shout out for the listeners that you'd like them to be aware of i know obviously your album but is there anything else i've worked on some commissions this year and going into next year i'm working on a commission so i i wrote a piece for the tesla string quartet uh, that you can check out online it's called variation meditation and I am working on a piece for this brass quartet called The Westerlies that will be released soon. Yeah, that's what you can look out for. But thank you so much for having me here today. Anytime. Thank you so much for this. This has been yeah, really wonderful. And once more, listeners, uh, all of Kalia's links will be down in the show notes. So her website and links to get hold of her album, etc. Thank you so much and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore, and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Kalia Vandiver and performed by Kalia Vandiver, Theo Wolentini, Nick Dunstan, and Connor Parks. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>